Hello and welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost, for this episode. And today it's just me. My better half, Shelly, is busy writing the first draft of her book, which will be coming out, we anticipate, in a few months because we have faith that even though she's in her very first draft, this thing will be materializing. There are note cards all over this whiteboard I'm looking at as proof that she has got lots of ideas she's working on. And I'm taking over the podcast today. I'm happy to do so. And I'm happy to be doing so on behalf of someone has posted on our social media asking. We've got we've had several people ask us recently about this, the idea of like, well, what does a healthy ego look like? And it might be in response a little bit to the idea of us talking about the true self and contrasting it with the false self. Well, a lot of people are wondering, you know, we, well, we see all these distortions of how the unhealthy ego looks like. In fact, we have nine different types of the ways that we are behaving when we are in our false self or a, a distortion of that. You know, and before we even keep going here, I just want to say that I hope that the way that I'm communicating this to you all listening to this podcast is as a friend. That's really how I think of it. Like I'm talking to a friend, someone who I know maybe knows a whole lot of things about other things that I don't know about, but this is material and content, um, a field of inquiry that we love, that we know a lot about because we ourselves have been practicing it for a long time and find it continually fascinating. And as normal, regular humans constantly are working on these things ourselves. And one other idea about just even like, well, what is a healthy ego look like? We're all going to ebb and flow. And so it's good to know, yeah, these are characteristics about what a healthy ego looks like in relationship, but we are definitely not always going to be there until we have really arrived at a very high level of practice and self-understanding and the understanding of others. So maybe it goes without saying, definitely have compassion for yourself Definitely take this in as a friend who knows a lot about this given subject through practice, coaching others, who really, I really value this. And I really do believe, both Shelly and I believe that we're constantly sharing these things that we know because we do know they are proven. They will definitely impact your life if you want to, if you, if you care to want to endeavor in some of these practices. So, you know, so it's absolutely true that everyone's going to have to break free of their ego because it manifests in, well, at least nine different ways, doesn't it? 
Uh, so if you are curious about like a particular kind of patterns of the ego, then check out some of our previous episodes uh, discussing the, the different types. In fact, let's see. I think you can go back to December and listen to episodes 1, 14, 15, and 16 on the Enneagram body, heart, and head types and stress. Also, if you go back to... I think there were episodes in the 70s, about a year ago, we we had different panelists representing and talking about each of the nine types of the Enneagram, and, uh, and they, that can really help too. But with that said, and with the particular ways in which some of us need to come to breaking down the ego, there are overarching ways that all people look when they have deconstructed their ego. And by deconstruct, I mean, I don't mean you've completely gotten rid of it, as we've also thoroughly discussed and is the very premise behind our our name, Big Self. The ego's not just this bad thing. What you really don't want, though, is to keep it from driving the whole machinery and usually driving without you even knowing it's in charge. You're just sitting shotgun. So what you want to be doing is you want to be in control and you want to be observing yourself, understanding your ego. And then if you understand it, you will begin to transcend it. And before I even talk about these six different types, I'm sure the timestamps will tell you if you want to skip right to the six. But before we get to those six ways a healthy ego looks like in relationships, there are these three stages of observational learning that begin and continue the process. So the first we call self-observation. The second we call self-inquiry. And the third we call self-development. So it's observation, inquiry, development. But the general idea here is that you begin the process of increasing your awareness by simply bringing the practice, and it is a practice, of observation into your daily routine. Sometimes I talk about this on other episodes, but the idea of self-observation isn't the domain of any particular coaching, psychological, or spiritual practice. This is a widespread and commonly understood principle. So it's not just us saying it. Don't just take my word for it. It's basically like this. If, if you don't like the results of something you're experiencing in life, then begin to observe the behaviors that lead to the outcomes. And that can come from your actions. And those are what lead to the outcomes or results. So you start there in self-observation. And now self-observation, it's not as obvious as it seems to people who don't actually practice self-observation. And to, to give you a couple of examples, you don't know how you look without a mirror or without someone else holding up a mirror, literal or metaphorical, for you to perceive yourself. Have you ever noticed how your voice sounds different to you than you hear it when you hear yourself on an audio recording? Or have you ever become more aware of your facial expressions and body language when you're on a Zoom recording? And here's even one more. Like, what about when you gain weight? 
you don't really notice until you both read the scales numeric report telling you how much you weigh as well as slowly noticing incremental changes in your body, which are also easy to ignore or overlook or tacitly accept. Only people who are less self-aware believe they're all, they already self-observe. It's just like regular life. Of course, you're always, you're always seeing what you're doing. You're, you're the one doing it. But it's very much like the, the concept is, you know, the beginning of wisdom or knowledge is beginning to understand how much you don't know. And when you actually do begin a self-observation practice, you begin to see how much you actually aren't observing or paying attention to your your patterns, your behaviors. A lot is going on on autopilot and unconsciously. And we could ask, well, why is this? Like, well, why are we always going into autopilot and falling into sleepwalking behavior? You know, it's survival that we... We, we default into behavior so we don't have to think about everything and overload our brains. We just do some things on autopilot. But anyway, after you begin to accept the concept of self-observation and then you're like, okay, I'll maybe I'll practice it a little bit. So after an ongoing and steady practice, you know, you have your ups and downs, but overall you've got, you're like trying to practice some self-observation Then you begin to self-inquire. And definitely, you know, there's overlap in these stages. You don't just stop self-observing and suddenly you're self-inquiring. But genuine and consistent self-observation should pretty naturally lead to self-inquiry. And so self-inquiry is this process of reflecting on what you observe, and it could be in the distant or recent past, but you, you take the slightly more courageous step than just observing your behavior and you're, you begin to accept the assertions or the grounded factual assessments of your observations and you begin to dig And you ask yourself questions, well, like, what was I communicating with my body language that I probably didn't mean to? Or what does it mean when I show up to this conversation in an already negative frame of mind? How can I lighten up instead of being so intense here? Or how can I bring a little more openness to an idea and and so on? So you reflect, you inquire, you ask questions, and hopefully some of these questions are good questions and the kind that, you know, begin to lead to a few different actions, which result in different outcomes. And right there, you're already, you know, achieving results. And then with steady practice, as you get better and better at both the observation and reflecting, it becomes easier and you begin to be able to change these behaviors in real time, so to speak. And that's where the self-development piece comes in. You have effectively developed an ability to avoid the negative outcome or undesired behavior, which leads to the undesired outcome in the first place. 
And rather than being reactive and then having to reflect, uh, you know, maybe having to regret something or apologize later, you are able to more just recognize the behavior, adjust accordingly in real time, and then experience a different, more desirable outcome just as it happens in real time. Okay, so that's that's the beginning setup for getting to these six different ways that a healthy ego would will look in relationship. Here are six ways that a healthy ego looks like in relationship. One, a calm, non-reactive disposition. I wrote a calm, a small calm, calm book called Who Do You or What Do You Expect? Discovering Methods for Deep Calm back during the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And I remember my first thinking when I, when I was coming into contact with this idea of like, well, you know, be calm. Well, I, I felt like it meant passivity. But overall, just make no mistake, calm is active. Interestingly, maybe one way to remember it is to be non-reactive takes a lot of activity in the self. So calm is action and calm is disciplined. And the good news for, for everyone listening right now is that calm can be taught. If, it, if you don't feel like calm comes easily, you can, you can learn it. So again, breathing techniques can aid calm, but in the final analysis, calm comes from your thoughts. And we've, we can talk about at another time how you can track your thoughts. You track them through the language that you speak because that's a definite, clear reflection of your thinking. But calm comes from your thoughts. Calm is it's one of the most actually overall important building blocks of self-awareness. So while there's no one place to begin on the journey of self-knowledge and self-understanding, calm and this non-reactive disposition is pretty fundamental. To use a Greek word about it, if I, if I may for a moment, the concept of apatheia. And for the Stoics, that meant just eradicating the tendency to uh, react emotionally or egotistically to external events. Uh, and ultimately, those are the things that cannot be controlled. And so for a lot, especially men, this is a, an appealing way to think of being calm and non-reactive. They can think of Marcus Aurelius and they, you know, they're like, oh yes, okay, being like a stoic. However you want to visualize it, you know, being calm is being in control. And it doesn't mean that you, you lose feeling or you disengage. It, it, you're very connected. You are manifesting this idea that like you can't be ruffled. You're going to absorb what's going on around you. It implies that you have a stillness like in the core of your being. And just to, without going on about this concept on and on about it, I will just help reassure you that all the great religions and philosophical schools 
basically have a term for finding it and for what being calm allows. And it, it allows us access into, you could call it the Tao, the Logos. It's stillness. It comes from solitude and silence. And there, these practices lead to an emotional energy of calm. Okay, so that's how we begin. Number one is a calm, non-reactive disposition. Two, the ability to give feedback on behalf of yourself. So some types need to hear this one more than others because some are great at immediately stating how they've been offended or hurt and many other types are not. And even the types that are good may not always do it in healthy ways. You know, you find a lot of people holding on to their anger, it can, which in turn turns it into a low level, constant boiling beneath the surface, which often turns into a disposition of resentment. And they come to a real or imagined belief that there is nothing they can do about a person or about a situation. And they choose not to stand up for themselves. They don't give feedback on behalf of themselves. So if you're a, a person with positive self-regard, then you possess the courage to know when it is, is appropriate to say what you need to say and perhaps what you are not receiving in relationship. You look for the opportunity to speak up on behalf of yourself. Three, the ability to receive feedback from another person is another sign of what a healthy ego looks like in relationship. Now you can say all of these points are, they are tied together. We're separating them to create some clear distinctions for points of awareness, for points of emphasis. And, and sometimes too, I think, you know, Number, number two and three here definitely go hand in hand. When you give someone else feedback, it may very well lead to feedback they give you. And, and by, by, by connection leading back to number one, it will probably require you to be non-reactive and steady to receive the feedback without immediately jumping to conclusions, jumping to your defenses and excuses for why you're behaving the way they're at least saying you are or, or its impact on them. So one way to improve your communication immediately, both received and given, is to begin with actually asking, well, when you're giving it, ask permission to offer the feedback in the first place or, you know, be aware of being open to granting the feedback if you really mean it. And then, and I think this is super important as much as possible, start with objective facts or what in, in my coaching I tend to call assertions. So when you ground your criteria, when you're giving feedback and receiving it, it's nice to have the criteria based in observable 
fact-based behavior. It makes it clearer. It makes it easier to move forward to our assessments. So the assessments, we're doing them all the time. Assessments are how we interpret another person or situation. And we, we cannot avoid assessments. We are made of them. But it's really helpful to keep in mind, they do tend to say more about us. The assessor, the one making the assessment, than the thing being assessed. Unless, of course, these assessments are truly grounded in facts, grounded assessments. So if I say Patrick Mahomes is a really great quarterback, I can rely on facts to ground my assessment. He's made the most championships of any quarterback this early in his career. He's setting a new standard for improvisation with all his different throws. I could refer to his humble leadership. But if I said, I don't like the, to stick with the NFL here, if I say, I don't like the Dallas Cowboys, this is more of a subjective assessment that does say more about me especially as I can't ground it in observable facts that we can all agree or rely on. But the point, the point is, a person with a healthy relationship to their ego isn't immediately reactive and defensive, but also when receiving feedback. They don't immediately go to blame or express reasons why they're behaving the way they do. It's going to be because of others, because of the situation. It's not their fault. So pointing back to number one, they remain steady and open to hearing even what they may not like to hear about their own behavior. And you know, I want to point something out here. It could be a good sign that you may not like the information you're receiving about yourself. Because it could well mean that on some level, at least, you might agree that the behavior being described isn't behavior that you deem as desirable either. In other words, your very defensiveness means you are in agreement that if you didn't have any excuses and if you were able to agree with the grounded assessments, you might even agree that this is a standard you don't value either. It could be a step in the right direction with being able to receive the feedback. Number four, clear boundaries with oneself or with yourself. So the part about clear boundaries with yourself that I want to emphasize is to allow yourself to feel an emotion without becoming the emotion or being swallowed up by the emotion. Or if you hear a constant nagging voice in your head, having the ability to acknowledge the voice, inner critic, I hear you. Thank you for the way that you're trying to help keep me safe and meet my deadline but you've made yourself very loud and clear and now I need you to be quiet. 
The same can be true with any mental loop. So we talked about not becoming your emotions. Those are sort of emotional loops that you could be continually recreating and refeeling, which does impact your thoughts and the way that you speak, your behaviors. The same is true with any mental loop as well, any mental fixation. And also along these very lines of clear boundaries with yourself is the ability to recognize limits. They could be limits of how much time you have to perform your tasks or goals. They could be limits in how much time you make for yourself or how much you consider the other person in your life. They could be limits in how much you can drink or how much you can exercise or how talented you are as anything, a musician or a speaker. The paradox here, and this is really it. So you're, we're talking about within this number four here, clear boundaries within yourself, is we're talking about the recognition of constraint, right? Of seeing how there are some limiting factors here. And the paradox, I think, is that that's where creativity can emerge. Creativity emerges out of constraint. You think of the, why has the the sonnet been such a form that has lasted and endured all these centuries? It's quite a constraining a form, but that seems to lead to an inspiration of creativity generation after generation. And we could go on with those ideas, but the recognition of these personal boundaries actually prepares you for springboarding out of your personal ego, personality prison, where you're like, I'm just fine right now as I am. Thank you very much but into this freedom of more capacity, more freedom than you really ever previously believed you could have or existed or was out there. Number five, clear boundaries with others for a healthy ego and relationship. The idea of knowing where your needs and desires start and stop and where another's begins. It's critical for being a healthy ego in relationship. So sometimes like fives, especially Enneagram fives, they have a hard time. They, or they maintain rather these like hard emotional and physical boundaries. And so they may need to break down the walls that hold them inside and free up those boundaries in their virtue of non-attachment. But for many others, it's quite the opposite. They have very permeable boundaries. They, they allow others to just take and take. And it reminds me, of a couple of Shel Silverstein allegories. If you don't know Shel Silverstein, totally check him out. One of his famous books is, there are there these kids' books, but they're for everyone, they're, which is part of the genius of them. And the Giving Tree is his famous one 
but you know, the giving tree isn't just this sweet little book, right? It's ultimately about a, it's about a codependent relationship between this tree and this boy, which ends up leaving them both pretty unfulfilled. And the tree is spoiler alert, chopped down to a stump and yet still trying to be as helpful as it can be. And that's one that comes to mind. A less famous Shel Silverstein one is The Missing Piece Meets the Big O, which I love every bit as much. And The Missing Piece is at first, you know, this kind of triangle missing piece. And she's trying to find a another missing piece where she'll be able to kind of fill her, fill into the void of the other piece. What she ends up finding is that she is a whole piece herself. And what she needs in relationship is another whole O, a big O. They need the O's will roll together. But you know what? Forget the allegories. To put it in less allegorical terms, a healthy ego knows how to establish healthy boundaries and to work in relationship with others who will respect those boundaries. They can manifest in a lot of ways, but let's just keep it right there with personal internal boundaries within yourself, number four, and number five, boundaries with each other, knowing knowing when enough is enough, but also knowing like if you hoard your emotional energy and time, having some of the maturity and health to know when it's time to give. Finally, number six, radical responsibility. So perhaps the biggest overall idea here is that a healthy ego is not a victim. That's right. You are a healthy ego. You are a whole person in a healthy ego right now, and you are not going to blame others for what they are doing to you. You don't blame for anything that's not happening for you. In a, in a way, in effect, you could say that radical responsibility kind of sums it all up. If you're in radical responsibility, you're practicing self-observation. You're recognizing that your perception of reality isn't objective reality that everyone else sees. And you aren't defensive about that. You begin with the only real thing you can ultimately control, and that is your self with a big S. You can control your emotions, your thoughts, as well as the quality and the nature of your relationships. You know, you, you teach people, even if it's unconsciously, you teach people the way to treat you. And that's about the quality and the nature of your relationships. And so even as you build up your inner strength, knowledge, awareness, you aren't doing it to make yourself better or superior to others. Not when you're taking radical responsibility. You're doing it through humility, with the recognition of limits, and how in the end, we're all just humans doing the best we can to get through this thing called life. You know, some may choose to remain in the safety of their personality confines. 
and have others adjust to their imperfections. And there, you know, that's for them. That's for, that's their, we're not going to judge, right? Maybe that's just where their spirit and soul needs to be. And they will continue to manifest very similar outcomes to the ones they're already thoroughly familiar with. And this is how they will live out their years. And that's for them. They can be trapped in their ego that dominates their instincts. And there's tons, so much untapped potential. But not you taking radical responsibility in an ego aspiring to more and more health. You can begin to recognize the untapped potential in your psychological, your emotional, your your somatic and body development, your spiritual development. And all of this impacts your relationships. And ultimately, it's going to impact your ultimate fulfillment and happiness. And I suppose that does bring to mind as a final thought that it does take some courage to begin to make this growth, uh, these these growth stages of self-observation, self-inquiry, that's going to lead to the self-development. And as much as a lot of people in your life may really cheer you on in that growth, they want to see you grow and you will know who those people are. There will be, you may be very aware of them right now. There will be lots of people or maybe just one important person who does not, they do not want you to, change. But you can't be controlled by living a life pleasing what someone else wants you to be who, and that isn't even who you are. That would be truly being trapped. So with that said, I hope that there are some really helpful takeaways in today's episode on six different ways that a healthy ego looks like in relationship. And as a quick summary, they are to have a calm, non-reactive disposition. Calm is active. They have, you have the ability when you're in health to give feedback on behalf of yourself. Three, you have the ability to receive feedback from another person, especially trying to be reflective of how grounded are the assertions, how fact-based is the information coming at me, and also am I receiving it from multiple sources Uh similar information. Number four, clear boundaries within yourself, recognizing limits. Five, clear boundaries with yourself and other people, and especially being able to teach others to respect your boundaries, opening up your boundaries if that's what you need to do. And finally, 
the idea of radical responsibility, really, really owning ways in which you recognize that not everything goes your, has gone your way and you're not a victim. You're a co-participant in creating these realities that you are experiencing. And there is a way for you to observe your behaviors, which are leading to your actions, change your behaviors but through self-observation, and they will they will yield, they will manifest in a very real way different outcomes. And therefore, you are creating and recreating actively. You're co-participating as, as a creation in creating your future, both in the short term and over the long arc of the story that is your life. And on that note, we will see you next week, friends, bringing you more tools and ideas for how to break ground in whatever territory you find yourself in. So here is the benediction and blessing that we have been leaving you with for most of the episodes in season four. May you always be blessed with walls for the wind, a roof for the rain, tea beside the fire, laughter to cheer you, those you love near you, and all that your heart might desire. 